you know, sometimes, sometimes I consider like when I'm editing the episodes and I'm listening to myself, I'm like, what if I just went into my garage and re-recorded my parts to be coherent? And just re- <laughs> and just just like edited in your responses. <laughs> to make I mean, uh, sound you know, prepared. whatever, whatever you need to do, Barry. It sounds fine. I like that. Sometimes I need to hear us like messing this shit up to realize, like, oh, now I know what the right way to address this was. <laughs> Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Get out your rainbow can of Bud Light and get ready to reapply your SPF every 90 minutes because it is June, which means that it's Pride season. This week, we're talking about Imperial Teen, the alternative rock band that hit it big with 1999's YooHoo, the quintessential 90s soundtrack for accidentally murdering your best friend in the trunk of your car with an oversized piece of candy during a birthday prank gone wrong. In 2002, the band released their third album, On, featuring the song Our Time, which I consider my overlooked pride anthem. Don't, I don't know when I wrote that. I, you know, I was just telling Adam that the opening sequence of Jawbreaker, where, uh, spoiler alert, the friend is found dead in the trunk of the car, kind of haunts me to this day. The image of her, like... And I don't know. I have not seen it since. But the image of her, like bulging, veined, like like clearly, you know, she had like a the jawbreaker gets into, gets her, into throat. her throat. Yeah, and she like so people know what we're talking about. Uh, so this band that we're talking about today, Imperial Teen, I think their biggest kind of mainstream hit is the song "Yoohoo," which was in the 1999 soundtrack to the Darren Stein film Jawbreaker. And Jawbreaker starred uh, a young Rose McGowan um, and Rebecca Gayhart. The Noxzema girl. Before she, before why. she'd run over that child. Yes, but like, you know, I always felt bad because I always forget her name. I always think of her as the Noxzema girl because that's all we ever called her. Even though, like, I don't know why that was her main claim to fame. Like, she was um, uh, Luke Perry's girlfriend on Nine Hundred Two One Zero that got blown up in in the boat. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Uh, she was also she, married to McSteamy. On she, Grey's Anatomy. Are they still married? I, think, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't What's care. That guy's name? Eric something. Dane? Yes. I, Eric Dane. I think they're still married. I think that there was rumblings around um, potential infidelities. This is all alleged for entertainment purposes only. But like, I remember there was stories going around about like Eric Dane being with other women. Rebecca well, Gayhart being with other men potentially. But I think that they have... They talked about maybe having a swinger type of marriage yeah. anyway uh, well they're there's they they filed for she filed for divorce in 2018 oh no but uh hmm. doesn't say if they do are they working on it are they working it on says it? they're still separated and separated in 2018 but i don't okay well well yeah anyway in oh my 90s, god his name is actually eric t melvin not Dane. <laughs> but like his stage name, his stage is, Eric name Dane. is Eric Dane. Okay, okay. I mean, Eric T. Melvin. That's, that's a, problematic on multiple fronts. Um, it's not a great name. It's also because it's also it's also two first names. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. Anyway, 
um, in the nineties, Rebecca Gayhart, Rose McGowan, um, Judy Greer, Judy, Judy Greer, Greer was in yes, Judy this Greer. movie called Jawbreaker. Darren Stein, Darren Stein later directed the movie GBF. Like we really know him for not a lot of other stuff besides Jawbreaker and GBF. Do people um, know him for GBF? Because gay people do. Okay, that's a good movie. If you haven't checked it out, check out GBF. Michael Willett, uh, JoJo is in that movie. Um, the girl that played Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter series is in that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. That movie's good. It's a, it's a really good it's movie. It's so charming. <laughs> Jawbreaker was okay. Um, but in the, the premise of Jawbreaker is that these girls are playing a prank on their friend. They're the, they're like the queen. mean girls, basically. They're, yeah, they're like, it's like the queen bee of the mean girls. And they're playing mm. this prank on her where they're going to kidnap her for her birthday. And so they... They uh, they attack her and they shove an oversized jawbreaker in her mouth and shove her in the trunk of a car because it's going to be like, ha ha, it was a joke. Happy birthday. But she dies. She dies in the trunk of the because car. Because the, the jawbreaker gets lodged in her throat. And I, and I will say that opening when they open the trunk and they see her dead scars me to this day. Horrifying I, I, prosthesis. Yeah, I... I, yeah, I can't even, I don't even remember how the rest of the movie, I had to go and read like the synopsis. Anyway. Well, okay, so Judy, Judy Greer's character yeah. is like a witness to the murder. And so in exchange for her not saying anything, they she was a super nerd. make her over. She was like a super nerd. Yeah, they make over, they make over Judy Greer's character. Fern. So she, Fern, she becomes Violet. <laughs> um, and Rebecca Gayhart, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a, a, a Heather's type of movie. Yeah. Because, and Rebecca Gayhart's character is like the analog to the Winona Ryder character in Heather's a little bit. Anyway. Anyway. Murder, the song You Who, Imperial Teen, it's probably how you know about Imperial Teen if you were not like me, like a, a, a currently 40-year-old person who was a teenager in the mid-90s. I mean, this 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 whole playlist that you put together, Imperial Teen, like the only reason I knew who Imperial Teen was was because you famously for many years, and I don't know, maybe to this day, still wear an Imperial Teen t-shirt. T-shirts. I'm, I'm, that, I'm that guy that I'm in my 40s and I wear band t-shirts for bands that I went to shows for in the 90s. Yeah, he's I that had like guy. A, I had a like I had like a 1998 Fountains of Wayne T-shirt straight through to like the mid 2010s, well, and like the 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 screen printing was falling apart. Well, and so listeners, you may you may understand then sort of my when I met Barry, my confusion at this person who was so indie and yet so into Britney Spears, but like could be in all of these worlds, had these T-shirts that of obscure bands that he still listened to. <laughs> that I was like, who are these people? And then well, like the, we go like, and you'd be like, oh, Brittany. And I'm like, huh? It's the magical mystery. It's the magical mystery though of what happens to alternative music from 95 to 2000 to 2005. Like that whole decade of alternative music, I think it explains why a lot of people who are like indie pop fans, uh-huh. it's like, it's, it, it shares a lot with pop music. I think that there's a lot of credibility in retrospect given to the bubblegum pop of the early 2000s, specifically because, you know, alternative music becomes very confusing as we continue throughout the 90s. Um, Jason. Yes. Uh, the whole premise of this episode. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. It's June. Happy Pride. Um, we are old hat at Pride celebrations. Uh-huh. Um, That's true. I think you and I have gone to uh, a dozen or so pride events in our in 
in our time as friends mm-hmm. over the past couple of decades, um, I was thinking about all the, the all the musical acts that we've seen at Pride. Um, I remember seeing Kimberly Locke at Pride. <laughs> Deborah Cox, Deborah Cox in San Francisco. Deborah Cox, Deborah Cox in San Francisco. Um, perennial gay Pride favorite. Shaka Khan um, also at that at that. Uh, pride in san francisco oh i don't remember seeing shaka khan well that's because she was kind of far away and very short san francisco pride was interesting because it takes place in the the civic center of san francisco and i remember all of the stages were all over very far apart so like if you wanted to see deborah deborah cox at like the um she was on the asian stage for whatever reason yes because we went she was not on the bill we went uh, our friend eric and i we went to go pee in a porta potty Came out and I heard her song. I remember this. Yes. And I was like listening and I heard her take a breath and I was like, she's here. It's not just a track. And so we And we went running. Uh Huh? I remember like from down the block, we were like, we clocked it. Like that's, that's Deborah. She's here. She's here. And we ran. I, for some reason I thought it was like, was it like a combined like Asian, black, urban? Yeah. They were like all of the people of color. You get one stage over here. Truly, truly signature uh, pride event (laughs) in the 2000s <laughs> but yeah no we're we, we, we still see? in the process of confronting issues of of, of race I've seen brandy community. seen kelly Rowland. uh i was not there for Kesha. kelly Rowland. i was not there i don't i saw brandy at a gay club i don't think it was during pride when we saw brandy yeah we were at the factory yes i yeah. think it was just incidental i think brandy just happened to be there not happened to be there but it was like not pride season um I remember seeing, do you remember seeing the bangles at Long Beach Pride? Yes. And Martha Wash? Martha Wash? Martha Wash? Martha Martha Wash. Wash. Did we see? I didn't see Martha Wash. I did. Uh, Also, Crystal Waters in Long Beach Pride. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Crystal Waters, I remember that. Uh, Anyway. Many, many. Carly Rae Jepsen. Did I? I Betty who? Full disclosure, though. Barry stopped going. Barry stopped going. Yeah, I stopped going. Well, specifically, like, we had always frequented Long Beach Pride. Mm -hmm. For many years, we frequented Long Beach Pride. Long Beach Pride has more of, like, the country jamboree, (laughs) uh, small town vibe. Yeah. Because it's a a smaller city. Uh, The parade is much more homey feeling. Mm -hmm. The, The festival is much more homey feeling, I would say. It feels less corporate, in a way. Less corporate. And, um, LA Pride my number one thing is I hate parking oh, yes, in West yes, Hollywood. Yes, yes. We've established this. Yes, you Law, hate parking. I, I think I talked about this in the last episode. I hate parking. I hate parking my car. And it's impossible to get anywhere in Los Angeles without a car. The nice thing about Long Beach Pride was that we knew someone who had an apartment along the route. Our friend Chris. It's okay because he doesn't live there anymore. So I can, or I'm not doxing him. Mm-hmm. Um, he had an apartment that had a great balcony. I think a third floor balcony that overlooked the parade route. Uh-huh. We could just drive down to Long Beach, have a sleepover, wake up in the morning. The The neighbors were blasting that Beantown Boogie song. That's not called Beantown Boogie. <laughs> oh, these sounds the bomb. Yeah, it's it's the it's called The Bomb. <laughs> it's These Sounds Fall Into My Head. Oh, fall Into My Mind? Mind, my mind. Yeah, it not just sounds called, like Beantown but, Boogie. Everyone, it's a, it's a common misconception that that song is called Beantown Boogie. And it has nothing. To yeah, because someone would be blasting it across the street to wake everyone blasting up. Blasting it across the street. We're just li- we're just reliving our young twenties now. Um, but I always liked Long Beach Pride. It yeah. had a it had a different vibe yeah. than LA Pride. Every time I've gone to LA Pride, I just get like social anxiety around like being around so many people. It was the thing of like suddenly we were willing to wait like thirty minutes to get into a bar 
that on a regular weekend, we wouldn't even deign to be seen in. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I felt like that's what we would do anyway. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a... Wait 30 minutes to go to Trunks. It's it's become an interesting thing, right? The corporatization, the commercialization of pride. The sort of, the classes, sort of, you know, like who can afford to go? Who can afford to do all of the things? It's not really for the people anymore. And what what I always liked about San Francisco pride was you had mentioned that it's in the Civic Center. And so it's literally in the center of the city, right? And there's Mm no cost for entry. Everyone can come. Um, LA contrasted with LA Pride, which is like basically in the quote unquote gay ghetto. Basically, it's like in the, it's in that small area. It costs at least thirty dollars per day to get in to any of the things, um, and it's it is very corporate. I mean, it it can it can still be fun, like if you go with friends, but like it's become increasingly hard for just I think for people to for young people to have the kind of experiences that we had at pride where you kind of mm-hmm. just show up. Like, I mean, yeah, it was like always crowded, but you kind of just show up. It's much harder to do that now because of the way they've set it up. And so it really yeah. does become like who gets to participate, who is pride for. Um, but, you know, I mean, they still do these concerts and things that can be really fun. Um, you know, if again, if you could afford to go, yeah. um, but uh, you know, it's, it is it, interesting. Cause I saw Kalani there. Hmm. Yeah, it's you know, but, but but you and I like so our 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 time going to Pride together kind of evolved because after that we um after like you know going to Long Beach Pride doing all the things I think we finally figured out a way in the last few years to me me and Adam my partner and you and Davy would meet at like a bar like one bar that was like maybe less popular than the others. <laughs> After the I mean, parade, the last, oh, because okay, yeah. but well, that was the last time I remember going to the last time I remember going to L.A. Pride had to have been like two. Was it maybe? I guess it was two it was years ago, years right ago. before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I went for the parade because um, Davy was in the parade, mm-hmm. and um, therefore I did not have any qualms about. I think we paid like twenty dollars. Yeah, but you had parking, right? Like, because you had to. Because no, no, we paid we paid twenty dollars to park in a parking structure in West Hollywood. This is truly like the luxuries of being a 40 year old gay man with like disposable income. It's like we're at the point in our lives where I'm like, okay, fine. Like I'll go drive and pay $20. 20 yeah. But like to, to, the, and- to the point about like who can go and who can't. Right. Like, I yeah, mean, it's so expensive. Yeah. It's so crowded. Um, it's impossible to get to by, by bus. No, really. I mean, it's not, I mean, you could walk in, but then it's so far. I don't know. It's the whole thing, but you were already there. We so, were there. And we lived and sort of like, in walking distance. So we could just walk down and meet. Yeah. Up. And at that point I was like, Oh, like, yeah, like let's meet up at a bar. Even then the bar we were at, was that gym bar? Is that where we were? Uh, well, there was that time. There was the time, the time I was thinking about that was really fun was when we were flaming at saddles. Flaming saddles. <laughs> okay. Flaming saddles. Oh yeah. 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 yeah Why was, was I at flaming saddles? Because I you were trying to, to have a good time. Yeah. Trying to be I mean, young. And that was Flaming Saddles at that time of day on that particular day that we went was not that crowded. Well, that's what I mean. I think I think we found a time where it was like, oh, all of the things that we were hating about Pride, like at the time, yeah. like kind of evaporated that year and it reignited our our willingness to participate. We had a lot of fun. I, um, I, that's going a little bit far from Okay, me. you know. Re, I don't know about reigniting anything. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if there was an ignition to be reignited. Um you know, but what was interesting to me in, in kind of revisiting those pride memories, the pride festival and those musical acts that we went to go see at pride, like very few of the acts are like LGBT 
plus identifying. Yeah, did you like you, at best at best you get like allies. Well, were you there when you saw like when Ollie from um Years and Years performed? No. Well then that's on you. <laughs> no, but by and large, we're talking about like Kelly Rowland and like <laughs> like kind of like sort of be we ki- well, we hope allies mm-hmm. of the LGBT plus community. Um yeah. but also just kind of like the vibe of like dance music. I think that dance music, club music becomes somewhat synonymous with gay club culture mm-hmm. or gay culture in general mm-hmm. during pride season. So like a lot of pride anthems, I think are like they're dance songs. Yeah. So they're like disco songs and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting to me that like, by and large, I was like, did I ever go to pride to see um, an LGBT identifying act? And like the only one I could think of that I remember in my mind seeing was Ari Gold. Do you remember seeing well, that I think was, we saw Aria yeah. Gold at Long Beach, but, but like 12 again, or 15 years ago. This comes back to because you guys didn't ever want to pay for the concert, right? Like, cause it because it's expensive. Like, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of people that you want to see. So if you can't afford to or don't feel like paying, you know, an extra $50 on top of whatever you're paying for parking, on top of your drinks, you don't get to see the concert. In which case, like some in, in the more recent years, um, you know, like Betty Who was there. Now, granted, she was on a free night. <laughs> the lesbian <laughs> Friday, Friday. So it's Pride weekend. Friday night is usually a free concert. It doesn't cost anything to go in. But they pull sort of like the the B squad. And they had Betty Who there, <laughs> who I love. We've talked about her, but she identifies as queer. And um, uh, I think the headliner on one Sunday was, it was uh, Years and Years. And he's queer. Okay. And But like, again, if you're not into paying, right? Like if you can't afford to or you don't feel like paying, like, then you don't get to experience sometimes maybe some of the other queer artists who, uh, because it's just, it's behind a wall, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it's not, it get to your point. It's not for everyone at that point. Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the point's well taken. I think, you know, but it, it's, it's access. It's, it's, it, it's become like a festival almost like a music yeah. festival. So yeah. But so, so you haven't really seen queer artists there except for Ari Gold, who sadly he died last year, didn't he? He died this year. Yes. Like last year or the year before he passed away of cancer. Um, But, you know, I mean, I guess my point being, though, that like a lot of like the iconic kind of pride songs that I think of, not necessarily by queer artists. Diana Ross, I'm coming out. You know, I was reading about I'm coming out and how people were telling her, like, do not make this song because people are going to think you're gay. Mm hmm. This was like like 1980. Yeah. So good on you, Diana Ross. Yeah. Thank you for being, and that's thank all. you for putting the A in ally. Okay. If you listen to that song, we listened to that on our way out to Palm Springs a couple weeks ago and I had it turned up in the car. The engineering on that song, like if you listen to like the drum, doom, uh-huh. doom, doom, doom. It's mic'd so well. It sounds like a live, like you're there, like you're at like a live performance of it. It's so good. And I was like, man, like, Man, Diana Ross. <laughs> like, and it, especially on a song that's like so identified with like gay people, right? Like it is fun that it's so good. Like it's fun. <laughs> I love that song. You're looking, yeah. you're giving me a weird look. No, but the, the, and that's the thing is like it's Diana Ross or like I was looking up listicles of like gay pride anthems. And I was like, yeah, but like. Well, but you know, like who? who it's yeah, raining but, men. Yeah. Like do I, I mean, yeah, like it's raining men. Great. I mean. I mean, historically gay artists haven't been 
uh, blessed and highly favored in the. <laughs> that, that, that is the <laughs> so. Thing. I mean, that, that, that is the crux of it. It's not right? like they're is not there. Like, even if you're booking gay, openly gay, or openly queer artists for your Pride Festival, they're not necessarily going to be A tier artists. Mm. They're not going to be major label artists because, by and large, those artists don't exist. Well, but hopefully now, hopefully now, I mean, you have people coming up that are, you know, you have like the Troy Sivans and. Um, that idea kind of informed why i wanted to talk about imperial teen imperial teen um uh roddy bottom who is the guitarist slash sometimes vocalist for imperial teen he came out as gay in like 1993 like three years before imperial teen actually even formed and will schwartz who is also a guitarist and vocalist for this band he later also came out as gay. Hmm. So the two men in that. Yeah. And I thought that that was, I thought that that was significant for me in that, like when they debuted in 1996, I was like 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And so to have like openly gay musicians making alternative rock that was being played on the radio, you know, and they were signed to a major label and making music that was getting exposure. Like that was significant to me, I think in 1996. And that was like, kind of like uh, the guiding light that I was trying to go for when I was thinking about like, oh, like who do I want to talk about for Pride Month? Um, I had a short list of other people that I was potentially going to talk about, right? Yeah. The first song actually, okay, so the I'm, I want to run through these quickly because I think that they're interesting and significant. The first band that I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'll talk about this band was a band called Book of Love. And I included this on the playlist that I sent to you. They made a song in 1992 called Boy Pop. And Book of Love, they got their start kind of in the 80s. Um, I think they were, they were touring around with bands like Depeche Mode. So like kind of in that electronic 80s genre. Um, they have a song called uh, Modigliani, Lost in Your Eyes, that I think plays in the opening scene to Pretty in Pink. Okay. And they had a few dancey club hits throughout the 80s. Their last album that they released in 1992 was an album called Love Bubble. And it has this song called Boy Pop. Now, did you ever watch public access television? No. Okay. <laughs> public access television, for anyone who is like younger than me, I guess. Like public access television was like the YouTube of the eighties, right? Mm -hmm. It's what Wayne's world is about. Wayne's world, Mike Myers and um, Dana Carvey, their characters have like a public access television show, which is basically like there was a certain channel on broadcast television dedicated to like anyone from the community that just wanted to like have a television show. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm familiar with it. We didn't, we didn't really watch it though. Oh, I mean, the funny thing is that, like, I, for some reason, I just remember watching it, like, late at night. You'd find, like, the weirdest things on public access television. Uh -huh. um, because I think, I don't know if, like, public access television was not subject to, like, FCC guidelines, but you could see, you could see, like, pornography basically being broadcast on public access television. And in San Francisco in the 80s, there was, like... Um, a public like there was like a gay and lesbian public access television show that I remember like tuning into as a kid. And this would have been like 92, 93, 94. And this song called Boy Pop uh -huh. was 
featured in an episode where they were just kind of showing footage, I think of like either a gay pride festival or like a Folsom street fair. So Uh it's like a lot of like nude men, harnesses, leather, et cetera, dancing. And then the song called boy pop where it's like, um, the guy in book of love, um, Ted Ottaviano. Uh huh. And the lyric is like from the bottom or the top. When we go, we go pop boy pop. And I think that was like the first time that I'd ever been like, Oh, Oh, like that's what this song is about. (laughs) So like early, early gay pride anthem for me was boy pop 1992 book of love. Um, the second song that I was thinking of, and actually the second artist that I was thinking of talking about today was, um, a song called Run to the Sun by Erasure. Mm-hmm. And Andy Bell of Erasure is like openly gay. And I think has always had these songs that like you come at from, I don't want to say a feminine perspective, but there's something about like Andy Bell and Erasure songs where like the point of view that he's singing from, it never feels like the traditional quote unquote traditional man's perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of like longing and um, sadness, I guess, to like love songs that like you don't normally associate with like a man singing a love song. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I didn't. Gr- so that was so, you, you know, as you, you sent me the list of the songs that you had kind of were were thinking about talking before we you settled on um, our time and Erasure comes up and. Was I watching the other day? I was watching. Um, so on Hulu, there is well, I guess it's on FX now, but it's streaming on Hulu also. There's a Pride documentary, which is really okay. good. I recommend anyone who's listening check that out. It's very good. It chronicles the history of um the gay rights and pride, like from the 50s. It it takes each decade. Um and in the 80s, there's a there, you know, they use um that what's the most popular erasure song? Just um da, 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 da. I had to a little respect. A little respect, yeah. Um, and I'd forgotten how good that song is, but like mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with it, right? I didn't grow. I didn't, I'd never heard really these songs, and I think I was talking to Adam about this. Like I, for a long time in the nineties, I didn't like anything from the eighties. Like it was too synthesizery, and so I kind mm-hmm. of automatically rejected it. And I had done that kind of with Erasure, um, but I love that song, a little respect, and I love sort of where it comes from. And I think it is interesting that you say like it's from a different perspective because I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but it is. And, I, you know, it's and it's so good. And it's like this music is out there. Like, I just didn't know. Yeah. I, I think it's the thing, too, where, with a lot of Erasure love songs. Um, and this is a big deal that comes up with m- me when it comes to Imperial Teen is that I think traditionally when you're thinking about a woman singing a love song, there's a sense of powerlessness. There's a sense of like entreating your lover to save you in some way uh-huh. that you wouldn't expect a man to traditionally sing. And I think yeah. that's like erasure crosses that line without ever explicitly saying I'm singing to a man. So like there's a vulnerability to it, a vulnerability and like asking for someone to like save you. I feel like me- the male point of view on a love song is never is, like is it's not necessarily you. It's not necessarily weakness when you're seeing as a man. Well, it's not vulnerable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Traditionally, um, 
Anyway, I, I fell into this trap in the 90s. It's not a trap. I do love Erasure, but I think that in the 90s, when I was kind of um, coming out, I felt like there was a weird obligation to like Erasure. I think that there was like this desire to just seek out queer culture in whatever form it was, regardless of genre. So it's like, oh, if the queer, if, if what it takes for me to find a queer artist is to listen to this like techno dance music, like that's what it takes. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to buy erasure albums and I'm going to listen to erasure albums. Despite the fact that like, you know, other than the fact that erasure, I think was like a queer identified musical act. And that was the center of my fascination with them. Like, I don't know that I would have liked the music otherwise. Yeah. Well, and that's that was my issue. Because, like, I didn't come out till later than you, right? You're famously much, much older than I am. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't come out till like, I would say, like, 99. Um, and so prior to that, I listened to a lot of R&B. I listened to pop. And, like, there's really kind of a Darth of queer music I, at least in my experience like you know like it wasn't like that whereas like i think because you liked more a lot of more indie rock or what became indie rock you naturally sort of encountered other musicians where there was like maybe a queer artist or you know i wasn't listening to that stuff and so well, I when, mean, but that's the thing is like it didn't really i don't think it really existed anywhere like it didn't well, but it like, wasn't even something that you could find necessarily in alternative music. Yeah, so. and I think I just wasn't, you know, I was too young to be like going to the record store at that like before then and like like going rifling through that kind of music. So like boy, what is it? Boy pop. Uh, not boy pop. I mean um, Book, Book of, of Love, Love is like so obscure. It's so obscure. Like but, no one But even Erasure, like because it's Erasure is more mainstream. It's more mainstream, but like I think also there was this sort of like if it seemed a little queer or if it had like a queer reputation to it. I ran the other way because I was closeted mm-hmm. for so long. Right. So it was like, it was like, it's that whole thing that you have in your closet where like any association, like with anything that could be marked as queer, you kind of push away. So I, you know, I think I, I didn't go there. And then when we were talking about doing pride artists or artists for pride, and I, I really was like struggling to think of who I would do because I just didn't have it. Like yeah. I had no, like none of it in my musical history. So um, I've yeah. discovered more of them later. And I, I did think it was really interesting going through this list of yours because it is so different. Like, you know, like to my my musical experience at the time. Yeah. And to be clear, like, I mean, the, the, the playlist that I sent you, the playlist that might become this week's playlist is like a fever dream of like every critical association I was making with this Imperial Teen song that we will talk about someday. Well, let's, um, let's get to talking about it. Well, but I want to I want to talk oh. about the Erasure. Okay, so my lovely second alternate for this week's song was Erasure's 1994 song "Run to the Sun," and I think the song was one of the first instances where I heard a song, I listened to the lyrics, and I was like, "Oh, this song is about," or the reading that I had on it even back then was like, "Oh, this song is about the bravery of like living your truth. It's about pursuing." your true form uh-huh. um, because there's this sense from the song. He's basically saying like, um, so the lyric for this song is like, for the first time in my life, I'm up to run away. It's not a choice that I made easily. It's not that I'm ashamed to face the light of day. It's really just a case of self delusion. And I know it ain't easy to see the truth. And basically like there's just this, uh, and it's a, and it's this up, 
tempo dance song and it really gives you this sense of like oh like i'm gonna break through in some way in the pursuit of some greater truth that i'm currently concealing and there's this part in the end of the song it's kind of like the breakdown after the verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus whatnot like at the breakdown at the end there's this interesting part where andy bell is repeating the chorus but a second andy bell is kind of low lower down in the back background of the track singing a counter melody where while he's saying like run to the sun here's one for the road you'll never be you know i'll never be lonely are you so high above me but his counter melody is basically saying um run to the sun see how my life is changing the days go by i wonder if i'll make it mm. and if you get a chance to listen to this song i urge you to pay attention to that point in song because i think it's like this beautiful melody with a counter melody that's happening and he's singing kind of two different things it feels like to me it felt like one person feeling like they were singing to someone who was leaving them behind while simultaneously debating like should i come with you on this journey and to me that's very like i don't know it, it felt very relatable at a young age of thinking like you know wanting to come out, seeing others around you come out of the closet and wondering like, am I brave enough to actually pursue that journey as well? Mm -hmm. When you're kind of coming of age in like 1994. So that song was my lovely second alternate to what I was going to talk about this week. But ultimately, I wanted to talk about the band Imperial Teen and their 2002 song, Our Time, which um, maybe we should take a break. Yeah. I'll get into talking yeah. about it. Okay. Sounds good. Um, well... Before we take a break, though, please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe to us on, uh, you know, whatever podcast platform of your choosing, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all of the things. It helps us out. Um, and follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter at flopredeemer.com. Send us an email at flopredeemer at gmail.com send us your suggestions we've received some really good suggestions uh in the last couple of weeks that we're working through so keep them coming we really appreciate it uh yeah reach out let's go to break um okay so jason um oh god what? I'm not going to go into a tangent, but I'm going to go back to what I was talking about before. The last thing I wanted to talk about with Erasure, mm -hmm. because I want everyone to do this, is go look at the video for Run to the Sun. Okay. The video, the Erasure video for Run to the Sun features a young Jason Statham oh. with silver body paint and little silver booty shorts doing backflips and stuff. Oh. It, it, it's, it, it feels oh, I like see the precursor... Him. It's the pre. It feels like the precursor to um, Mariah Carey's Loverboy video with the silver spandex flag dancers. Um, but that's another reason why I actually love Run to the Sun because I will say this: that um, the album that Run to the Sun came off of, which was I Say I Say I Say, nineteen ninety four, uh -huh. the hit single off of that album was the song Always, which is one of like the few Erasure songs that became a hit for Erasure in the United States. And what I always disliked about the music video for the song always was that one, there's like a, there's like an Oriental theme to the whole thing. So it's like a woman dressed up like a geisha. And then Andy Bell is like a samurai that's trying to save her. 
So one, I hate like that oriental bullshit. <sighs> but also I hated the idea that they were packaging Andy Bell as like a male hero trying to save like an Asian woman. woman or just a yeah. woman in general. Yeah. yeah. So that's why like when the follow-up single Run to the Sun comes out with this total like fagalicious, like silver body paint um acrobatic video, I'm here for it. Yeah. I'm I'm here to champion all of that. This video is a trip. It's it's low tech. It's I mean high tech for nineteen ninety four. Is it? I don't know. I couldn't tell. When did Michael Jackson's two million dollar scream video come out? That was like ninety two, right? No, it was much later than that. It was much later was than it? that. Was yes. it much later than that? When did I get the black or white when did I get the black or white cassette single? Isn't that ninety one? No. Well maybe, but Scream came out in uh ninety four. Jeez. Hold on. It was released, I guess, 1995. Okay. Okay, so I was off. But... By a year. But the same the same, the same, same year. The same year that this Run to the Sun video comes out. It's uh, Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson are dropping $2 million on a, a music video for Scream. Now to get to the meat of this episode... Can you tell I've been delaying this because I don't actually have any research or script writing done? Um, only just because you've said that. Okay, cool. I'm I'm all about disclosure. So Imperial Teen, if you don't know who they are, they're an alternative slash indie pop band from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, they make their debut in 1996 with their debut album, Seasick, and the lead single off of that, a song called Year One. Uh, Roddy Bottom who is um, one of the founding members of Imperial Teen. He was originally uh, the keyboardist for a band called Faith No More. Uh-huh. And you, if you know Faith No More, a song by Faith No More, you know the song Epic. I feel like I know, or, I know the name. It's they, I never really liked Faith No More. Mm-hmm. I know that they have like an iconic place in alternative rock history. Mm-hmm. They kind of have like a, a weird hybrid of like metal, funk, rap rock kind of there's like a weird intersection that they occupy that i never really cared for like listen to the song epic i'm sure you know the song epic Uh um and they also had a song called um we care a lot that i think got a lot of radio play but around in about 95 96 roddy bottom is not having a great time with faith no more he is also um going through some tough times in his life because he's trying to overcome drug addiction. He's dealing with the death of uh, a friend of his, a guy you might've heard of named Kurt Cobain, Mm. who um, overdosed slash committed suicide in 1994. Uh I think that happened. Okay. So he's dealing with a lot of this stuff. He's having creative differences with uh, his bandmates as part of faith no more. And just kind of like on a whim to do something fun, he decides to start a new band with his friend and neighbor, um, a drummer named uh, Lynn Perko. And Lynn Lynn Perko was a drummer that had been making the rounds. She had been with um, a few different kind of underground, like punk acts throughout like the eighties and early nineties. And they team up and they recruit their friends, uh, bassist Joan Stebbins and then guitarist Will Schwartz to form the band originally called star 69 until they were sued by a different band (laughs) also using the name star 69. And then they became the band Imperial team. 
Star 69, like when you would call to trace whoever called you back? Uh, call oh, back yeah. Whoever. For people who don't know what Star 69 even means anymore. Yeah. Star 69 was how you like, when you got crank called, oh my goodness. People used to crank call you. You just Star 69 them. You find out who the fuck was calling you. Yeah. It would dial out. them back. Yeah. Anyway. For the youngs. <laughs> uh, so Roddy Bottom um he forms this band. Roddy Bottom, I think I mentioned this in the opener, he comes out of the closet in 1993 as gay. And this is like kind of unheard of in the rock space to be openly gay in a rock band at the time. Still pretty unusual. <laughs> so when Roddy Bottom and Lynn Pergo and Joan and Will start at this band, one of the things that they want to do is they want to kind of share responsibilities and they want to experiment with things that they weren't normally known for. So one of the signatures of Imperial Teen is they actually frequently switch instruments. Huh. So Imperial Teen is one of these bands that I've seen frequently live over the years. And one of the interesting things that they do is like between songs, they actually have to like take off their instruments and like move around the stage because, um, you know, Roddy is traditionally known as a keyboardist, but he wanted to play the guitars and he wanted to sing for this band. And then, you know, uh, Lynn Perko known as like an awesome drummer, like she'll occasionally play the bass or she'll occasionally play the guitar. So they're constantly kind of switching spaces and that kind of made them like novel for the time. And I think the other signature for them at the time was that they were one of the few bands that had a shared kind of girl boy vocal harmony. Like, I think it's very rare that even when you have bands that have men and women in it together, like that you'll have them singing together. And that was something that kind of stood out for them from the get-go. So they form somewhere in about 95, 96. By 96, they have a record deal with Slash Records. And they are charged with um, writing and recording a bunch of music. Because it's like, hey, you have a record deal. Time to put a record out. So reportedly, from what I had read, they recorded the first album, Seasick, like in a week. They had a week to put this whole thing together. Huh. They had up to that point, I think, recorded like three or four different songs that ended up being on their debut album, Seasick. One of the songs being the song You're One. But by and large, like they throw the whole thing together very quickly. And I think that listening back to that first album, you can really feel a little bit of urgency to it, a little bit of a lo-fi quality to it, a little bit of like a not an oopsie feeling to it, but there's, there's definitely, there's a definite lack of polish to it that I think gave the album its essential patina for the year 1990, Uh 1996 when it came out. Because I think we talked about this with Veruca Salt that by my recollection, alternative music in the nineties was undergoing this kind of sea change from the mid nineties to the late nineties, where a lot of the acts that had debuted in the earlier part of the 90s as being grungy, having a lot of distortion, not having a lot of polish to their music. They were starting to get a lot of that polish. We were talking about Veruca Salt's second album having a lot of polish. Uh If you listen to like, there was the whole album that came out in like 98, 99, the Celebrity Skin album. Uh If you compare that album to like, the early whole albums, it's like baffling what is going on with these bands trying to figure out like how to refine their sound over the course of the nineties. And I think that it's what 
got a lot of those bands a lot of criticism is like here are these bands that were that felt like raw and authentic in the 90s and it like it's that thing of like by the late 90s it feels like are you selling out like what is this what is this highly polished rock music that you're giving us now and i think what was refreshing about imperial teen when they debuted is that in this mix it sounded almost amateurish hmm. And I think this is part because they were all experimenting with like, oh, like I've never, I've never played guitar on a, in a band before. Like, what is this like? I've never sung for a band before. What is this like? And so it has kind of that amateurish feel that, but to me also feels really fresh and really interesting. Can I talk about though, like really the, the determining factor for me? Okay. about why I wanted to talk about Imperial Teen in general. When their debut came out in 1996, when the song Year One came out, I recall this as the first time that I had heard a male vocalist openly expressing romantic feelings about another man okay. on the radio. And for this song, Year One, to be a pretty big alternative radio hit, I think like 16 year old me, like it blew my mind. So the song year one, the mythology of the song is that Roddy Bottom wrote this song about Kurt Cobain, that it was one of the songs that he wrote in the aftermath of like losing Kurt Cobain as a friend and then trying to then overcome his own drug addiction problems. Uh -huh. He wrote this song called year one and Towards the end of the song, the lyric is like, you take it like a man boy, it's with you I want to be. And then he, at the very end, he starts saying, kiss me like a man boy. And I think that in 1996, like 16 year old me, there was something so disarming about hearing that on the radio. And that's really stuck with me as something that I even to this day, like rarely experience is like uh, a real like punk rock moment of like a male vocalist saying something romantic about another man. And that's something that really stuck out to me and was the primary reason I was like, oh, like Imperial Teen to me has always been um, like a queer icon to me. And I think it's one of the reasons that they've always been very beloved to me because I was thinking about it. And I think that the, the idea of like a male vocalist, even expressing like a male pronoun in a song is still to this day very, like, not controversial, but there's a definite, like, no homo kind of stigma around it. That um, when you have male artists covering songs that were traditionally sung by women, they will often train, change the pronouns. Like, I think that that's something that I started noticing a lot around the time that, like, American Idol was really big, uh -huh. that you suddenly had a lot of male artists that were covering women's songs, but they were explicitly changing the pronouns as if to say, like, no, I'm not, I, I, I want to make it clear, like, I'm not gay, uh -huh. basically. Yeah. And I was even thinking about, um, do you remember when Sam Smith covered um, How Will I Know? Yes. And so even as recently as that, like, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to assume what their intentions were, but in Sam Smith's cover of How I Know, they changed the um, pronoun he. They they flip the song into the second person and say you. Maybe it's to avoid pronouns. I guess, but it, it just feels like. I guess. I mean, I, I it, to yeah. me, to me, there's to I me, think, there's a choice there. To yeah. me, there's a choice of like you can sing the song as it was written, 
and not change anything. Or you can make the decision to change it, but by changing it, you are explicitly saying something. And I think to change it to something indeterminate, I don't know. I don't, but I, I think it's I think it's important because I think that there is a there is just in general a stigma. There is an eyebrow raise to hear a man sing about another man in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's less. Yeah. Well, I think it's less so now. I mean, like in terms of you know, sort of. I mean, I guess obviously with like out artists. But um, I feel like it's very rare, even without artists, that they sing a song in the third person to a gendered person. I think by and large, the majority of songs, even by queer artists are largely ungendered uh-huh. in, in a way that I, I guess you could argue that like, as an artist, you want your songs to be universal. You want anyone to relate to them so that you don't want to like use gendered pronouns. But I guess just in the grand scheme of like, love songs sung by men or by women traditionally they will often identify the gender of the person that they are expressing affection for and it's it's traditionally someone of the opposite gender yes so when you have the opportunity to like you know be a queer person and express the explicit gender of the person that you're talking to i feel like that's a missed opportunity yeah I was thinking about like the politics of like, yeah, like what are the politics of switching the gender in a song? Cause at the same time, there's a great Lemonheads cover. Got it. In the nineties, I had the biggest crush on Evan Dando. If you don't know who Evan Dando is of the Lemonheads, look him up. He was a big heartthrob. But um, in the nineties, the Lemonheads recorded a cover of different drum, the Linda Ronstadt song. Uh-huh. And what I always liked about the Lemonhead's version of different drum is that Evan Dando doesn't change the gender of the person that he's mm. singing to. So even Evan Dando as like a straight identified person, like isn't afraid to just be like, well, th- the song is written about a man, like just keep singing it about a man. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, 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 I think your point, I, I, I get your point. I also do think that even as recent quote unquote as 2015, it's a whole other world still. <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I do think that we've that things have come a little bit further, but I think to your point, the examples are far and few between. So what song am I talking about today? I'm talking about the song Our Time, which is from their third studio album, an album called On, which was released by Merge Records in 2002. And in contrast to their previous two albums, which I think got a lot of alternative radio play, I think by the time that 2002 rolls around, the landscape for alternative music had kind of changed. There was much more emphasis, I think, on like punk pop. Yeah. By 2002, your Blink 182s, your Lits, um, your Yellow Cards, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there was, there was like a a sea change to music. I think that you had alternative artists that were trying to weather that change to mixed results. So I also think of like, you know, like you think about the stuff that Liz Fair released in the nineties and then Liz Fair comes out in the two thousands with, um, that song, why can't I, Mm -hmm. the matrix song, Uh or even like Sheryl Crow, Sheryl Crow, um, coming out in the two thousands with like soak up the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were all trying to weather 
the storm and emerge into the 2000s as like relevant to 2000s era music. But a lot of other like alternative rock artists, I think they kind of turned towards more of like indie music. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know that I ever heard the term indie in the 90s. Indie became much more of a big idea in the 2000s, I feel like. Because it was just and alternative so, music before. Yeah. And then it it, it started to it started to splinter off into different things. And where I feel like Imperial Teen's signature for those first two albums was a mixture of really raw, hard-hitting, almost grunge music paired with these alternating moments of being kind of cute and twee, a little bit precious. Yeah. Like, if you if you take a listen back to the song Year One... It's kind of disarming the way that the song Year One alternates between the verses and the choruses because the verses are so, um, they're like headbanging verses. Mm. But the whole thing kind of screeches to a halt when you get to the chorus because the chorus is really cutesy and it has this male-female harmony that kicks in. Uh Again, you'll have to listen to the song. I'm going to provide a link to listen to like what the effect of it is. But I feel like those are the two kind of dichotomous sides of Imperial Teen that they always had to them. But by the time that we roll around to 2002 and the album On, I think that they rely more upon that kind of indie pop vibe that was one half of their sound before. And they really lean back into it. Because On, as an album, it has a lot more of like um, almost like a 60s vibe to it. Yeah. I want to say that there's songs in there that remind me of like um what was that what was that like weird ironic Japanese band like the 5678s is mm-hmm. that what that band is called? Like there was this kind of revival of like a a 60s rock kind of vibe yeah. that people were exploring. Yeah, it was like the like kind of like well, I don't want to say Pizzicato 5, but like it's like a Yeah, it was like a mod. Mod. Very good. Mod, that, that's exactly right? what I was like, thinking. Yeah. So Imperial Teen comes out with this album in 2002 and it really leans into more of an indie pop sound, a 60s inspired sound to me. And one of the songs on this album, it's like a, I guess it's kind of a deep cut. I don't know if it was a single, but it's a song called Our Time. Um, Again, to go into like the use of pronouns, when you use a first person plural and you say us or our, it always begs the question of like, well, who... Who are you talking about? Who is us? Who is we, basically? Uh-huh. And I think that lyrically from the context of the song, like they're talking about misfits. And I think that that's where the song really re- the song really hooked me. Because the, the lyric of the song is like, the boys are wearing feathers and the girls are wearing leather because it's our time. It's very queer. It's very queer. I think that that lyric always really spoke to me. The song itself is just like an indie pop, fun romping song (laughs) yeah yeah i don't think that it's typically what you would think of as a pride anthem but at the same time it's like a rallying cry to anyone who feels othered in some way or feels like they're presenting in a different way than is generally accepted and it's like well and i I do think that this is interesting because like to your point when you say like it's not what people think of as like a pride song that's because we think of dance music like i i you know typically dance music or pop music as being where you find the pride anthems. I think it's very rare to encounter someone who's like, yeah, all of my pride anthems are from like alternative bands that formed in the nineties. 
you know, <laughs> and like had their heyday. You know what I mean? That like, I, I just think it's really interesting. I think it's cool to be talking about a something so personal because it is really truly unique to you. Not, well, I don't mean like only you like it, but it's it's a it's a it's a what is it path less trod? Like this isn't like you know what I mean. You're not talking about yeah. like Gloria Gaynor. I will survive, right? Like as a pride anthem, or you're talking about an actual uh, you know queer artist who was putting out music at the time about a queer experience, and really the only. Uh, avenue to do that at the time seemingly was in alternative music, right? Like it wasn't there, and because even now there's still very few opportunities in pop music to do it. Because we've talked before about, you know, what what is the nature of music that will make it resonate to a gay audience? Like, uh-huh. I think we talked about this with Carly Rae Jepsen and how there is, or, or like Robin, when we talk about certain non-queer identifying artists, but like allies uh-huh. or artists that are disproportionately popular with gay audiences. It's like, we're constantly searching for like our identity or our viewpoint in the music of others. And by and large, we have to transpose ourselves onto a non-queer experience to find that. And so to your point, like for me, like, especially in the nineties, it was just, I think it was so strange to have like out queer artists in alternative rock, especially this type of rock music. Like it, it, yeah, for lack of a better term, it just, it just rocks out. Like Mm -hmm. their, their music is like the music that like as a kid just made me want to like headbang in front of a mirror. (laughs) There's a video for this song, Our Time. I don't know if it's like the legitimate video or if it was a fan-made video, but the band doesn't appear in this video. So that's why I don't know if it's like the legitimate music video for this song, but it depicts like a young guy in his bedroom and over the course of the video, like puts on lipstick and starts to change his clothes into kind of like, I guess of the era, like a more stereotypically gay appearing outfit and then at the end of end of the video like climbs out of his bedroom window uh-huh it's it, it's weird because i i think i watched that video and i was like oh like that's exactly how i feel about this song mm. um just that feeling of like being a kid trying to figure out like how you want to express your identity i think that that's one of the like that's one of like the hardest parts about um coming out of the closet is like once you get past that initial moment of like okay i'm out it's it's about figuring out how you want to express your gender how you want to express your sexuality and how that expression actually fits into like the queer community at large i think that's one of the things that's like really interesting to explore during pride season and when we're talking about how pride has changed over the year, what the actual experience of going to like an LA pride is like, is about fitting in, in the queer community. And we like to lead with the idea that like, there's a place for everyone, everyone belongs. Um, And I don't know, like, you know know what I'm saying? Like, 
Yeah, and that's not really true. <laughs> it's not really it's true. Not the, it is not the lived experience of most people, I would say. Yeah, and I think that that's who this song is speaking to, most of all, is basically just like, if you felt like a misfit, if you felt like you didn't fit in, whether outside of or inside of the LGBT community, it's like, this is your anthem. So I did just discover that Roddy Bottom... Uh, as part of Faith No More, will be on tour this year because they are going to be playing at Bank of California Stadium in October. Oh, nice! As part of yeah, a festival I mean, with like corn and like. Oh God, really? They're going to play with corn? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because it's like here. Here's the here's the lineup. Give me one second, because it's because I think that okay, I think that Faith No More is considered like their specific genre of music is considered by some to be the precursors to things like corn and Limp Bizkit, where it's kind of rock, it's kind of rap, it's kind of funk, mm-hmm. it's kind of metal, it's kind of in between a few genres. Yeah, yeah. it's a, They're described as a fusion of heavy metal, funk, hip-hop, and progressive rock. Um, Uncon- unconvinced, unconvincing white rocker rapping kind of music, you know? Yeah, so it's going to be them, System of a Down, Corn. <laughs> helmet and russian circles i mean i was reading interviews with faith no more kind of they they reunited in the late aughts yeah 2015 and they were all like they were all kind of like i don't know who corn is i don't want to know what corn sounds like you know because people were always like oh like you guys were incredibly influential like a lot of people regard you as like the precursors to this type of music, like corn and stuff. And they're like, I don't know. They're, they're like, that's cool. But like, I don't want to know what corn is. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. And at um, this point, like corn is also a legacy act. <laughs> I remember that when Imperial Teen debuted, I felt like there was like a few bullet points, kind of like market key marketing selling points for the band that I think really helped them take off. Uh-huh. One was that Roddy Bottom was from Faith No More. I think that really helped them, at least to get press. It gives them right? that like, cred, right? It's like, people this were writing them a, up because, oh, yeah. this is not, this isn't just some young upstart nobody band. This is like, you know, the keyboards for Faith No More started this band. That was one big bullet point. The second big bullet point was the association with Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And Courtney Love, debut, right? Well, the debut single, Your One, being about the death of Kurt Cobain, um, I feel like those those things helped them get a lot of buzz when they first came out. But to me, the most interesting part was always like, why aren't people talking more about like this is like a queer identified band? Well, I mean, I guess yeah. It's I mean, it's the whole '90s of it all, right? Yeah. Like, because I will say this that like on the surface of things, if you listen to the song Year One, it's hard to see a through line between Year One and the band Faith No More. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's almost immaterial to say like Roddy Bottom is the keyboardist for Faith No More because the music of Imperial Teen bears no resemblance to Faith No More. Well, and then yeah. also to like I, I guess to like um to highlight the Kurt Cobain connection is also tenuous because I never would have known. Like if you listen to that song, if you read the lyrics, it's 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 hard to see the connection. So I think I thought it was interesting that at the time those connections were so hyped up as a way to promote the band, even though I don't think it actually has any bearing on the music itself. But like, I think my cynical mind is like, well, those connections as tenuous as they are negate any negative fallout of an, of of potential or potential fallout from coming so hard out the gate with a song where he's singing about a man. 
Yeah. Kate, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, well, yeah, he's queer, but like, look, they're, they're really like, he knew Kurt, like, uh, you know, he's from Faith No More. Like you can, yeah. you can still get behind these gays. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, well, I also think that like without, without those inroads, I don't think that this song or this record necessarily would have gotten any exposure. Uh-huh. Like, I don't think that like Rolling Stone or Spin Magazine necessarily would have been writing up this album. Yeah. Without those kind of bona fides behind it. Yeah. I mean, it does. Yeah, it's, it doesn't surprise me that no one was talking about the queer stuff because, like, why would they? I mean, you know, Ellen lost her show when she came out on her show. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like this was something that was acceptable. Like, I mean, yeah. I think it's, I think it's kind of fascinating that you were listening to this as a kid and or teen and kind of, you know, thinking about how it related to how you wanted to present yourself. I mean, like there were no positive affirming figures to look to really in the nineties to help you define that. And I, I think it's fascinating that like within the alternative music space, we've talked about this, um, you know, when we talked about the cardigans or right. And like, you know, alternative music being this place for like a lot of female creativity and like vulnerability in the songwriting and things like that. And, and I hadn't really thought of that right at the time. And Mm -hmm. that was actually potentially the best place to find this kind of affirmation, right? Like, cause you don't think about it, like even cause you're talking about this, is what 95 you said um, mm. by the late nineties, early two thousands, it's that pop punk thing where it's like kind of been, we talked about it being like usurped by like sort of man boys or man children, yeah. right? The blink 182s, the sort of lovable goofs um, and doofuses that yeah. came to define that whole genre of music. Uh, to kind of take it back from the sense sensitivity and vulnerability of maybe the artist that defined it, like a little bit more of the nuance. And so, yeah. There was a huge gap. It was like 20 years. No woman topped the alternative music charts because it was so male dominated. Yeah. And I think it was just that energy really took over like the 2000s and what our perceptions of like rock music are, it, what our perceptions of rock music is. Uh huh. And so uh imperial teen <laughs> i mean it's really cool because i didn't i i you know i didn't really know them yeah you know and i wouldn't have really thought to think of alternative as a place to find positive queer affirmation but now i will and i think that's really cool i think that your playlist that you put together is a great jumping off point um to to see those connections yeah it's it's funny because like I, I put that I put that playlist together when I was thinking about a lot of different things. Because, you know, part of it was that this song, Our Time, is I would categorize it as like an indie pop song. And so I was tracking a lot of my musical tastes. And so a lot of the songs on this week's playlist, uh, songs by like Dressy Bessie, or there's a song by Comida. Um, I was like, oh wow, my my whole musical tastes flipped flip turned upside down from like alternative rock to indie pop between like 97 to 2002. Like yeah. there, there was a big shift in the type of music that I was listening to. And a lot of that tracks with the direction that Imperial teen was taking their music in those years. Um, I found it fascinating and I actually, I really liked a lot of the music. Um, I hadn't heard Comida in a long time i did you know what so you put on the song elvira madigan which mm-hmm. is a crazy name for a song and and crazy theme and i was like is this a cover of something like did they ironically do this but the only way i know that is because some hipster somewhere 
uh, at some karaoke bar sang this song. And I was like, what is this song? And now I ha- now I have context, you know. Um, so I I just I just thought it was funny. Um, yeah, I thought it was good, good exploration. Cool. So thank you. Okay. Can I tell you though one re- one revelation that I had about looking at Imperial Teen that. Like when Imperial Teen debuted, I had the mega hots for Will. Will from Imperial Teen. He's the young the 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 other. He's the one. younger, darker, yeah. short younger, shorter, shorter, darker, darker hair. You guy. do have a type. Okay, so here's the thing is like in the nineties, <laughs> I feel like he was like the archetype of like twink hot gay guy. Well baby t shirt. Yes, but also but also alternative type. Right. Well, here's the th- but here's the thing is like I remember okay, this is terrible. But it's a sign of the times. I distinctly remember in the 90s thinking that Roddy Bottom was like fat. I mean, I was surprised that that was the one who was queer at first because the other one kind of looks gayer. But I think, look, look, it's not, it's, it, this is a, this is just uh, culture, culture writ large, right? We, you know. Yeah, no, and here's a revelation that I was having about uh, being a gay person from like the 80s and 90s into the 2000s, 2010s into the present is that we've undergone like a very big sea change in terms of like aesthetics in the gay male community. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, because, okay, the last time that I saw Imperial Teen live, I think the last time I saw Imperial Teen live was maybe actually like 2015. I was like, oh, Roddy's the hot one. I think, yeah, I can see that, especially now. Because at this point in like, like in the 2010s, I was like, oh, like Roddy's like kind of a daddy. Like he's well, got, but he's you kinda, were also, he's like a, I mean, yeah, he's like a bigger build. He's got like handlebar mustache. Yeah, but you were like, balding. how old were you? So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that the other, that uh, Will Schwartz would be the one. But I think it was like by and large. Okay. Because my, uh, my other context for this is I was watch- re-watching Queer as Folk, the Showtime version of Queer uh-huh. as Folk. There's an episode of Queer as Folk where, um, what's his name? Ted. Yeah. Ted is obsessing about this guy that had asked him out. And he just can't get over the fact that the guy is fat. The guy's out of shape. The guy doesn't go to the gym. Yeah. And watching that now and then seeing the guy that he identified as like too fat to date. Uh-huh. I was like, that guy's still skinny. Yeah. That guy's totally normal. And it recontextualizes everything for me. Cause then I look back on stuff where I'm like, Oh, it's really weird to look back at all these guys that in the nineties I thought were really buff and they look so skinny now. Uh huh. It's a different aesthetic, but it is also just that obsession with just like thinness yeah, we're I mean, super, so obsessed with man. thinness, like extreme thinness. Oh, Will, yeah. Look at like Will and Grace. When I look back at like Will, what Will looked like, I mean, even to this day, like he's just a very, very skinny man. Yeah. Yeah. But in the 90s, like in the early 2000s, like that was like athletic, right? Oh, can you hear like a chainsaw? What is that? 
Oh, I, I thought it was someone playing music. I was like someone practicing a violin. No, my na- my neighbor is like using a rotary rotary oh, saw or okay. something. But anyway, yeah, no, I I, I, thought, I think you're hundred percent correct. When I was when I was doing research for it's this episode, I was like, oh, like I experienced like a total aesthetic changing of the guard in my lifetime, where it was like, oh, like we were so skinny obsessed for so long, and now I feel like that paradigm is like flipped on its head. It is. It is. And now everyone wants to be like Jack. Verging on a different extreme of like being too into like super duper buff guys. Yeah. Cause it's, cause you see that, right? Guys are trying to achieve it. And it's like, no, like you need steroids to have that kind of body. Like you can't do it. So yeah, no, I agree. Anyway, I I, I don't know if that's, that's neither here nor there towards, towards why I love Imperial Teen. I just thought it was an interesting thing that i was experiencing you just you just wanted to talk about that so we could say happy pride everyone happy pride everyone um happy pride to david archuleta experiencing his first pride i know i yeah we don't need to talk about him but i i I thought it was very sweet that he came out this week yeah i was like i guess like i was hearing this new term the, the kids these days they have they have so many ways of expressing their gender and sexuality because when I was reading David Archuleta's coming out message on Instagram and I was like, oh, like this is like a really nuanced and very specific way of talking about like what you're feeling in the moment. And uh-huh. then it's fine if it's like kind of like the fluidity yes. that a lot of people talk about in terms of gender and sexuality these days. Because um, for the first time, um, like last month, I heard someone refer to themselves as a biromantic asexual, uh-huh. which I was like, oh, like that is such an interesting way of like being very specific yeah. about, you know, your romantic I, yeah, I get it, realm that you occupy. Yeah. Anyway, um, if you if you haven't looked at David Archuleta's Instagram post in for in in honor of Pride Month, I urge you to check it out. Um, I also urge you to listen to some Imperial Teen music. Yeah, because that was the reason for the season. That was the well. The reason we talked about Jawbreaker at the top is because you who by Interior yes. Team was featured on it. So, yeah. In addition <laughs> to that. Jason. What? No, I'm just saying. Like, no, it's good. I know. Was it? I'll have to, I'll find out when I listen back to all this footage, <laughs> um, whether or not I made any sense of anything. Um, my gay icons, Imperial Team. Check them out. Well, we do want to give special thanks to adam elder for composing our theme music songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website flopredeemer.com we will also post uh, you know the uh playlists on spotify for you to uh, listen to um i think on youtube you're gonna or on the website you're gonna put maybe some of the uh imperial teen videos for some yeah, of their I'm first gonna, stuff i'm not gonna not have available. to source those from youtube some bootlegs yeah because um, they're not available on streaming so uh be sure to check out our site. Our site does have some good stuff. Uh, Sometimes. <laughs> well, we can get to it. Remember no to pressure. rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. And as always, email us at Flop Redeemer at gmail.com with your questions, suggestions, comments, and uh, feedback. We yeah. look forward to it. Happy Pride, everybody. Thanks, guys. Happy Pride. <laughs> <laughs>